Welcome to Tonebenders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. I got you both today. Hi, guys. Hi. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Dustin is at Pulse Train. Let's do some comments. Cool. Okay, we actually have been a little uh, neglectful of the comments in the last uh, couple episodes, so we got a little bit of a backlog that we're going to tackle. Uh, the first one that comes up is from Dan Nichols 81 through uh, Twitter, and he asks the Tonebenders, I'd love to hear if you guys have any tips on recording fire before I go out and start melting my mics. Have you guys ever recorded fire? Uh, I've never done it on a big scale. Yeah, I haven't either. I think uh, Frank is the guy you want to talk to. Yeah, Frank, Frank would be the guy. What I would probably do is run some tests, just some heat tests in advance, you know. Um, do some flame bursts before you put your mics up and both listen to how it sounds and also just kind of feel where it's going to be safe to put your mics at. And also probably don't use fuzzies even if you're outside. Um, yeah, I've seen a couple fuzzies light up on uh, online sites. I know Rick Veers has just destroyed a couple blimps with fire. <laughs> One thing, if you're doing fireballs, then you don't have to worry too much because you're waving the mic past the fire. It's the consistent fire when you that you have to start really worrying about it. And uh, I've actually found that I like the sound of uh, synthetic fire better than actually recording a fire. I've recorded some campfires. And uh, I've been exceptionally conservative with it because I don't want to ruin the mic by getting too close. But I found that uh, with a couple uh, synthesizer programs, you can get some pretty great fire going. Uh, how so? Just with white noise? or Yeah, white noise and uh, some presets. Actually, even just the, the old standard from the old radio days of just crumpling up cellophane can work pretty well with some plugins on it. Yeah, cellophane always kills. Yeah. But um, uh, I, the experience I do have is recording firecrackers and fireworks. So those are large flaming bursts, that, uh, but it's not a consistent thing. And uh, when they launch off, they can uh, shoot some sparks everywhere. And you just got to be careful and make sure you have some uh, water buckets nearby or a fire extinguisher, because if you want to put your gear out quick, you got to do it before everything goes all the hell. Yeah, and you just don't want to start some sort of random forest fire that careens out of control either. You don't want but to start you... a forest fire? But the sound effect might be so good. Yeah, but if you do, make sure you capture it. Yeah, just right. keep rolling. Keep rolling. Uh, you know, I've I've got a short film in my brain that we're going to work on at some point, and it's got a lot of fire in it. And so I plan on dealing with a lot of fire, hopefully here in the next few months. It's really, really tricky, right? Because fire doesn't inherently make a lot of noise unless it's got a lot of energy to it. And when it's got a lot of energy to it, that's when it starts to get dangerous. So I'm going to try... You know, I'm going to talk to the film commission around here and see exactly what the best way is to go about doing some, you know, some gasoline bursts and some black powder bursts and some stuff like that. I know Frank Bree has done some of that, too, um, but he's up in Idaho and he's got, you know, a nice quarry that he can jump into. I'm down in perpetual drought land, Texas, so it's much trickier over here, but I'm, I can't wait to do it. It's definitely top of my mind right now. Next up, we have a question in reference to uh, Tonebenders episode eight. Uh, hi, I'm a musician and sound artist in Oslo, Norway. Thank you for making a great podcast. I followed you guys from the beginning and always get excited when a new episode is out. My question is, is there a relatively cheap microphone with a figure eight pattern available? I currently have a Rode NTG2 inside a Rode blimp 
and would love to just put another mic on top or below for MS recording. So we talked a bit about that in the podcast, and we actually, in episode 008, and we actually got an answer from another uh, listener that kind of addresses the question that we just had there that was from Christoph Lieselgaard. Uh, so this is from uh, Chris Russell, and he says, Great episode of the podcast. I look forward to each one. I'll also be in the market for a $500 figure eight microphone if someone would make it soon. At NAB, I was talking to the guys at Ambient and talked about their ATE 208 MSer that you mentioned on the podcast. They informed me that there were two versions of this mic and that the first version was very noisy, like you guys mentioned, but they assure me that now it's a true condenser and they've solved the noise issue. I asked them if it would be possible to get a demo or get better yet, get you guys a demo to do on the podcast. I think you should check it out because if it's at the right price point, it really performs. Maybe we should contact Ambient for a demo. So that kind of answers that question. That's from uh, Chris Russell again. Have you guys used the ATE 208? I have not, but uh, Andreas Usenbenz has. He put a sound up on SoundCloud that was a really good test. Let me play it for you. So, you, it, I mean, obviously I'm pulling this from SoundCloud, so it's hard to do a noise test from that type of thing, but it seems pretty apparent what's going on there. Let me just play you what the test that he put up. Use a Rode NTG3 and a ambient emesser 208 in MS configuration into my Tascam DR680. There is a lot of noise in the side channels. So that thing is ridiculously noisy based on the test that Andreas put up. Um, that's the only recording of it I've ever heard, and that's the newer one. That's the condenser mic, non-electric mic version of it. So that's the one they say has is the fixed version. Yeah, still pretty noisy wow. to my ear. So, hmm. for five hundred bucks, it's still pretty good, but you'd have to be recording pretty loud ambiences for uh, that to work out. Yeah, you, you just don't do ambiences that way. You you do static effects that way. I, I personally don't tend to do MS recording for ambiences anyway, so that's not a huge tragedy in my world, but. Okay, so next up we have a question from Jeff Hinton. He says, hey guys, thanks for another great show. I'm curious about what you're using to send large audio and video files to clients. I'm currently using a combination FTP and Gobbler to send large files, but neither is the most elegant of solutions. I've heard that DigiDelivery and Aspera is good, but can be a beast to set up and maybe overkill for an independent editor mixer like myself. Dustin, what do you use? Um, I run my own FTP server, and I use a FTP application called Rumpus from, I think it's Maxim Software. Uh-huh. Uh, it's great. I've been using it for many years. It's very intuitive. It's got a web interface, plus uh, the new versions have a mobile interface, plus um, the administration is incredibly easy. So um, I have a lot of space here in my, uh, in my studio, so I find that that works really well. Plus, if a client's uploading to me, if it's a large file, they'll just run it overnight, and when I come in, it's, it's already on my local network which is really nice. I don't have to grab it from some intermediary. I've tried Dropbox and things like that in the past, but uh, I always have a space issue as projects balloon. You know, I always have a problem where we'll be three-fourths of the way through a project, and now all of a sudden the Dropbox is out of space, and now you have to start deleting stuff. And I like to, especially when I'm posting for clients, keep all of the old versions available in case they want to go back and reference something or in case I want to go back and reference something. So... Um, I like having that flexibility by running my own thing. But that's kind of 
how I am in general. I like, I'm a control freak. Right on. Tim, what do you do? Uh, I actually am in the process of trying to re refigure out how I'm going to do this. About, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, before sending files was really easy, I signed up for an online service called ibackup.com. I believe it's .com. And it uh, lets you do some cloud backup. And I kind of started using it then when it was one of the 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 only cheaper ones. And now I'm kind of locked into it. So sometimes I use Dropbox, but iBackup lets you point, put stuff up and automatically send links to people. And uh, it's a pretty easy way of doing it, but there are better ways to do it now. But I've got years of stuff up, up there. So I'm trying to figure out a way to transition into something a little more efficient, maybe. Renee, what are you using? For some of our clients, we use FTP, um, and we just use the same host as our website. Uh, we use Cyberduck on our side, and you know, just like any other thing, and we administer it where they each get their own username and password, and they can only see their own folders. For the clients that aren't into FTP or they don't want to bother with FTP, we use uh, Media Shuttle, uh, which is from Signiant. We used to use the Aspera. Um, software, which was, you know, way back in the day, we used DigiDelivery, which was since bought by Aspera. And DigiDelivery is nice because the hard drive's on your side of the firewall. So when people send you files, it's right there. You just transfer it in like it's transferring off of a drive, which is really nice. Um, our Media Shuttle basically works the same way. The nice thing about Media Shuttle is it's really straightforward and easy and fast. It's faster than FTP. I don't know how they do that, but they managed to make it faster than FTP um, going up and down which is cool. Yeah, you know, and we used to, for a long time, we used YouSendIt and WeTransfer. Um, we had a pro YouSendIt account for a while. But yeah, like, you know, like Dustin ran into is, you, you know, even with a pro account, you file limited at two gigs, which if you're just delivering mixes is not a big deal. But if you're trying to get, you know, quick times in, obviously that doesn't work. And WeTransfer has similar limitations. And so Media Shuttle has none of those limitations, which is, which is the big deal for us. You know, Dustin knows how to set up his own network and kind of run it himself. So you kind of probably have a very similar setup. It just costs you way less money than it costs us. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the other thing. I think the, I think Rumpus was like 70 something dollars or something for the full featured version. And, you know, everything other than that, you're just paying for your bandwidth. So whatever internet connection you have to your studio, that's it. Yeah. So I operate my own thing with zero overhead at this point, which is great for me, you know, being a, a kind of a small boutique type shop. Right. And again, like the Rumpus thing is, it's FTP, but it also has a web interface, a mobile interface, your traditional FTP. So it's very accessible for clients. I've been using it probably now for eight years or so. So I've been with it for a while and I like it. Yeah. I know Gobbler at some point has in the works to, um, to implement some features to make their service work similarly. You know, the one thing that you send it and we transfer really have going well is a Dropbox function. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can just send somebody a link, they can click on it, they find the file on their hard drive, and then they just hit send and it just goes to you. Um, Gobbler would be cool if it had that. They're working on that. It's not implemented yet. Uh, but that's a big important thing for us with regards to the way that we take files too. It's got to be just super easy for non-technically savvy people to get me a file. Yeah. Yeah, there are some other really good, um, very robust services out there. Unfortunately, they they tend to be on the more expensive side, but they do do a great job of file transfer. There's WireDrive, of course, which is a huge one. There's Interdubs. There's PostSpots. Um, there's a couple of other ones as well. And those are WireDrive and Interdubs are very widely used, certainly in the commercial world. 
and they're incredibly intuitive, very simple to use. Um, you send out private links. It's really great for putting together like a reel or um, a gallery of things. So setting up projects and subprojects and that kind of stuff is really easy. It's a nice, really nice service. But again, that tends to be on the more expensive side because you're paying for the support and all yeah. of that stuff. So, yep, I have a client that uses WireDrive, and um, and they really like it. And it's easy for me. It's just like anything else. So. Yep. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a ton of options out there. I think you just kind of have to research and find the one that works best for you and the one that works best for your clients, you know, whatever is the easiest workflow. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever gets that file to you and to them the fastest and the easiest, that's what you should use. Yep. Okay. The next question is from Jack Menhorn. Hey guys, I really enjoyed episode 10. I usually drive while listening to podcasts and I reached my house before the episode was over. So I just kept driving. Thanks for sharing your insight into backups. I don't think Renee mentioned his own personal backup system, and I would be interested to hear what Timothy has going on at home as well. I work at home, and I'm pretty unsophisticated with my own backups. I just use Time Machine in addition to Carbon Copy Cloner, scheduled daily to clone my OS drive and my work drive. I haven't taken advantage of any off-site or cloud solutions, but I think Glacier is a great suggestion that I will be looking into. I think Renee's soapbox was fantastic and certainly warranted. The game audio circles I'm involved in stay pretty professional even with large amounts of young people involved which is good since a lot of our communication happens online and is such permanent i think your insight into audio professionals we must use a bit of everyone else's job that applies to game audio as well understanding level design user interface design and certainly animation and physics only helps our work work as well as everyone else's it's always a pleasure to listen don't stop making this podcast ever thanks jack nice so there's many questions involved in there I guess the first one is, Renee, what do you use for your own personal backup system? You know, I try and do as little work at home as I possibly can. Um, the work that I do do at home, I, I you have You said doo-doo. I, I said doo-doo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was my Beavis and Butthead moment. <laughs> um, the work I do at home basically just stays on my internal hard drive on my iMac. I clone that, you know, whenever I do anything on it. I use SATA drives with, a, um, with just a drive dock. Um, that goes USB straight into it, and so if I need to have a sound effects server or, some, or you know my, my clone of my sound effects drive, I can just plug it into that same SATA dock, and then I can just pull that drive out and chuck my backup in there, and then run the backup later. So that's kind of how I do it. Right on. Yeah, I do it similar to actually how Jack described with Time Machine and Carbon Copy Cloner. The advantage that I have is I'm I don't do any mixing, so uh, I just do sound effects editing, and then I ship it to a mix house. I have good relationships with all of them, and they have their own uh, really sophisticated archiving and backup systems. So I, I, I back up stuff for myself, but in terms of archiving long term, they do that. And if I need to access it, I can, uh, because I'm in tight with them, I can get it, archive stuff that way. So I kind of piggyback on the bigger facilities for that. But in terms of my own, uh, the main thing I worry about is my sound effects drives. Yeah. Because without them, I'm pooched. If I lose an individual episode of a series I worked on six years ago, I'm not too worried about that. So uh, the main thing that I, I'm just militant about making sure that my uh, sound effects drives are constantly backed up and uh, maintained. Yeah, I, I do something similar. You know, if I have something that I've recorded and edited at the house, it's in my mind, it's not backed up until it's transferred to work and then backed up on our work system. That's just how I do it. I Since I work at home sometimes and also I have a studio office, I have to make sure that those two sound effect drives have everything up to date 
So it, it's just important. It, it takes work, but uh, it's part of the gig. So yep. you do what you got to do. With regards to my uh, my soapbox on talking trash on the internet, I, I still see people doing it. I saw people doing it immediately after that episode went up. I saw that same guy put another thread up. And, I, you know, on JW Sound, I saw another guy. I saw a teacher talking trash about his student and about his Great. student's project. Um, and, yeah, his student was probably, you know, doing something stupid. But, good Lord, you don't, as a teacher, you don't go talk trash about your students on the internet. No, it's um, a good way to turn them off, you know. Yeah. It's not a good way to help them out, you know, and when you're a student, you're expected to not know what you're doing yet. You're still learning. Along those lines, I think I have a pretty good example of what you should be putting out on the internet when you're working on a project. This is from Carl Anderson's website, and this is a note he put up about after working on the film Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. So this is what he said. Trying hard not to be psychophantic or sound like an ass kiss, but so far, this is it for me. Of all the movies I've worked on, this is my favorite film. Is it the best sounding film I've ever done? That's for someone else to decide. I don't know how to put my satisfaction into words. In the end, I liken it to finding a new sound, something in me that is totally new and creatively fulfilling. Sean, that's the director, was a pleasure to work with. He is confident and trusting, listens well, and makes solid and clear decisions that take into account what a person who does what I do brings to the equation. Sean listened to new ideas, used those ideas to create even better ideas. And as is often the case when something had to go, and yes, I still love the flies that didn't make it in. You know why, and it was always for the better of the film. Always a team effort, and in this day and age, that matters so much. Not to mention Zach. Zach was the film editor. Zach rules. He's a humble fucking rock star. So back to how do I say this without sounding like an insufferable ass kiss? Fuck it. I'm very proud of this film. It is a great movie. There you go. So that's a pretty great way to talk about it, because he mentions that they had some uh, creative differences but that in the end he agreed with them and they understood each other and it just seems like it was a really great creative working relationship and you didn't throw anyone under the bus or anything. Yeah, that's the nature of collaboration. I mean, if you if you get your way 100% of the time, you're not collaborating, you're dictating. And when you when you do collaborate, people bring new ideas to you and you get to see things through other people's eyes and that if those people are good at what they do and if you trust them, then your project ends up just getting better. Yep. So along the lines of Carl Anderson, we have something special that we're going to try and do for the next episode of Tone Benders. Carl has agreed to come on and we're going to try and do a uh, kind of discussion on the film Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. So if you haven't seen it, rush out and see it now. It's available through iTunes to rent, uh, also on Netflix. Uh, and I'm sure your local video store probably has it too, if there are still local video stores where you are. So what we want you to do is see the movie, come up with any questions you might have or discussion points or uh, topics that you would like call to address and get them into us by July 5th. So you can send it in via email at info at tonebenders.net or hit us up on Twitter or just leave a comment on our website uh, on this episode's page. And we'll get those questions to Carl Anderson and we'll hopefully have a great discussion about the film. So this is our first time giving the listeners homework. Homework. Love it. That's homework for me, too. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, likewise. It's a really interesting film, so you're Can't in for wait. a treat. Cool. That was the comments. So what I would like to do today is do a little case study on some sound design as it actually happens in real time. So what we're going to do is we're just going to describe something for me to design. I'm set up in such a way here that... 
everything can still get recorded on my end, but I'm also able to work Pro Tools as I normally would and work all my tools as I normally would. And I'll just try and come up with something cool. I think the concept that I'd like to do, and I promise I have not done this yet and I've only barely started thinking about it, would be uh, video game style, a big plasma cannon kind of thing. So maybe imagine in your mind, you know, a big muscly dude holding a weapon down low beneath his waistline with a strap over his shoulder. And the thing, the weapon would be huge, you know, probably the size of his leg. The projectile that it would shoot would, would probably be some sort of electrical sphere. And that's kind of all I've got. Do you guys want to add, add any more detail visually or story-wise? It's got to be blue. It's got to be blue. Okay. Plasma blue makes me think blue. Sphere. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. The the projectile is blue or the or the weapon? I think the projectile is blue. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The weapon's black metal. Weapon's black there metal. We go. Rate of fire. How fast do you think you can shoot? Uh. My guess would be slow. Yeah, probably slow. Yeah, they're big. Because right. I'm thinking there'd be, you know, you'd have some kind of build up or wind up type sound right. before you would actually shoot the projectile itself. Right. So, you know, typically you'll get, you know, just some art and a little bit of some description sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even have that much, but we've got, a, we've got a general idea in our head. So what you can do with sound. And so before I start diving into some sounds here, I'll describe my setup as it usually is. I have a sound design template that I dive into for these types of things to start out with. Um, I've got, and this is mostly for, this is a film design template, but I could, I could route it out different ways if I needed to. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine mono tracks. I'm sorry, 12 mono tracks grouped into threes, and they're labeled M.FX1A, M.FX1B, and M.FX1C, M.FX2A, 2B, 2C, etc. So I've got four groups of three of those, and I've got the same thing with stereo. This would be for a stereo sound. I have a different template that I use for surround. This is all in Pro Tools for the way that I work. I use SoundMiner <clears throat> version 4 for my sound effects databasing. I have all of my sound effects in one big database. My speakers are midfield speakers in a medium-sized room. I'm listening at and the you know I set my I set the session up a little differently today so that I didn't have to use my headphones because um, I I'm not used to sound designing in headphones. It's it sounds different, and a lot of what I'm doing when I'm designing is I'm I'm also making mix decisions. I'm doing a lot of EQ and that type of stuff, um, and headphones just isn't a good way for that. So I apologize if there's some microphone bleed. Maybe I can edit that stuff out. But so my speakers, I've got mid range, I've got midfield speakers. They're probably eight or ten feet away from me, near the back of the room. What else can I think of as far as how my setup is going? I've got a one octave oxygenate keyboard. Uh, right next to me that I can use to kick up a synth. What kind of plugins do you have in your template? Uh, zero. I start out okay. absolutely empty. Um, I do have a verb and a delay kind of setup with revive and H delay, but nothing's routed. I mean, and it's routed through it, but nothing's actually turned up on my verb. Uh, the way that that's routed is with the verb send and a delay send set to negative infinity, and then my verb and delay aux returns are uh, set at zero. And so I can go to my individual elements and automate that up as it needs to be. I use a C24 for a lot of things. Um, I will often spill out plugins onto my C24 to do automation and to do rides and that type of stuff. I think How are you routing for printing? Do you route to stems or are you just routing out uh, one, two mix bus? 
for my in my sound design template, I just route out to a print bus. So basically, I have a submaster that I can that I can use to throw a limiter on it or anything else that I need to. That routes straight out to a print stem, which mm -hmm. goes to my main outputs, and then also from that submaster, I can mold it out to anywhere else I need to go. So for in this example, I'm actually using that submaster to mold it out to you guys so that you can hear it as well. You know, if I needed to run headphones. Uh, I run my headphones through the C24, so I don't actually need to route those because my C24 will route my headphones independently of my speakers, so I can mute my speakers and my headphones will still work, mm -hmm. which I do that sometimes if I need to uh, record. You know, the, the main tools that I use to build things are my sound effects library and sound miner, my Oxygen 8 keyboard, my C24 to control plugins, and a microphone. And that's kind of all I have. That's kind of all I usually use. And that's why I put so much time and effort into my sound effects library, honestly, because that's my big, that's my basic starting point. So let's let's dive in. You can you can tell yourself a story about the mechanics and about the physics of of the way that anything works, even if you don't necessarily see it. And you can tell that story with the sounds. And so what I'm going to try and do is flesh out a little bit more in my mind about how the mechanics are going to work. I think what would probably happen with the guy is when he fired it, he'd throw a big latch. Um, so I'd want to hear a big latch going, I'd want to hear it charge, I'd want to hear it stop for a moment, and then discharge and fire off, right? Um, sometime... Do we want to hear him kind of move it up to a firing position? You know, if he's carrying it low, would there be some handling noise as he picks it up? I don't think so. You know, in my mind, it'd be it'd be a big it's solid chunk of metal over the sling. Yeah, that's sitting on a sling, so it's not like he'd okay. have to lift it up to his face or anything. Because yeah. it's heavy, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to have to do a little stick figure drawing of this so that we can kind of figure it out here. All right. So, but yeah, but basically I'm, I'm hearing, you know, in my mind, and, and, and you do have to do this. Obviously, I don't usually talk it out like this. You just kind of, you just kind of think it out. But in my mind, I'm hearing kind of a <laughs> kind of thing, right? Done. Done. Uh, <laughs> so the first thing I'm going to look for is some locks and latches. I look for, you know, inside of sound minor type metal lock. Um, and it's, those are some of Frank Bree's bear traps. That's a little something. Some of my favorite metal clasping type noises are, uh, train coupling. Ooh. And, um, there's a, there's one, I forget what series it in. You might have it. Right? It's, uh, like meat slicer. It's kind of reverby and big, and if you pitch it down a little bit, it sounds sounds pretty mean. I think what I'm looking for specifically is um, a non-reverby, clean, medium chunk metal. Um, when metal's really thick, it's actually not super low pitched. Um, I'm searching metal latch here. One I always like to go to is a tank hatch. There's some great mm -hmm. clicks when they drop the circular lid of a tank. Yeah. Um, I just but, found uh, something here. Sounds like, like you're getting something there. This one sounds cool. So I'm going to, in some on you just hit S and it spots it straight in. And... Renee, do you use any macros um, in OSX or any other macroing program to help you I move do, back yeah. and forth between applications when you're doing sound design stuff? Um, I use quick keys and I use mm -hmm. quick keys to launch my uh, audio suite plugins. So mm -hmm. the way I have it set up is control one, I'm sorry, Apple one, is speakerphone, 
Apple two, sorry, control two. It's actually control. Control two is reverse. Control three is pitch and time, which I use a lot. Control four is EQ three, just a regular EQ. Five is my D verb. Uh, six is actually, I, I leave six alone so that I can actually speed things along for, for something else. Seven is an H compressor. Eight is a stereo H compressor. I use those to crush things. And nine is my SAN amp, SANS amp. Cool. Yeah, I have some macros set to, for the same thing, uh, audio suite, uh, reverse and gain, yeah. are two of my big ones that I love. Um, and then I also have one which I find to be quite useful. If I'm in Pro Tools, it will switch to Sound Miner, grab that sound, and then switch back to Pro Tools for me. So it'll, you know, I can get to Sound Miner's import in one key command. How do you pick the sound? Sometimes I'll find a sound in Sound Miner, but I won't be in the right place in my timeline to spot it. Oh, okay. So I'll go back to my session, get my, get my uh, position pointer where I want it, and then use that key command, and it'll automatically switch back to Sound Miner, grab the sound, and then put me back in Pro Tools. Do you work on one monitor? Uh, I have four. <laughs> yeah, see, I've, I've never felt a need to ever do that. I just Apple yeah. tab back and forth. I need to see everything all the time. And it's one key command, so you know, you're doing Apple tab, then hitting S, then... Well, once I hit S, then uh, this happens, right? It, it, when you hit right. S, it, it, it bumps you back into Pro Tools. So, yep. yeah, it's, I guess it's, yeah, that saves you one keystroke. I don't know. I've never felt the need to do it. <laughs> so here's my first sound. Um, what I can probably do. Uh, I also don't have gain on mine because I use um, shift control on my scroll wheel to do things with my um, with my uh, clip gain. <laughs> and I do I do tend to clip gain a lot. I'm going to kick open my EQ and just start messing with this a little bit. I'm just going to render that in. All right, so now I need it to do something cool. I, you know, for energy things, I tend to use synths. And I also tend to, you know, what I just did there EQ-wise was I carved out a lot of the low mids and pumped up the some of the high mids just to make it bite because I'm going to plan on doing something else for making it thump. So I'm going to jump into massive here. Renee, do you like to audio suite or do you like to insert when you're doing... When I'm doing design, design, I like to audio suite for a couple of reasons. One, it just kind of leaves me free, so I'm not worried about putting other things on that track afterwards, mm -hmm. and I'm not worried about automation tracking around. And two, when it needs to go to a mix stage or anything like that, it's pretty much baked in. Um, yep. I'm of the opinion that a lot of design is making decisions, and so you kind of have to you know, make a decision and own it. And if it doesn't survive on the stage, well, then that's... It needs to come back over here and get reworked, you know. Different people work different ways, but, you know, and I'm fortunate. I, I only either mix my own stuff or I work with my boss and he mixes it. So it's not like I'm working with a bunch of different mixers and a different bunch of different workflows. So that that's what works for me. Um, I'm looking for a big thumpy thing here. Uh, so I'm inside a massive Just now. type in big thumpy thing. There it is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to go to my synth and my envelope. So sorry, this is Native Instruments Massive that you're using? Yes, sir. I'm tweaking the envelopes right now, just kind of making them. Within Massive? Yeah. Uh, that decay comes to there. 
and I'm just using this for some chunk, you know. Uh, so what I do with Massive is I'm going to route it into a stereo track. I don't have Massive inserted inside of anything in Pro Tools. I just have it standing alone. Um, again, I'm just making decisions here. Uh, so I'm going to take a stereo track. Actually, you know what? If it's if it's something that I need to be big and chunky, I just leave it mono. So I'm going to take one of my mono tracks and set my input to my Mac return. And I'm going to... Just lay one down. And for all of you non-64-bit folks out there, running things in standalone is a nice way to make more use of your system memory. If you're running it in standalone, Massive can use a different allocation of memory than Pro Tools is using, which is exactly. sometimes nice if you're using a, quite a big session. Now, obviously, with Pro Tools 11, maybe not such a big concern anymore, hopefully. Now, oh, that plugin is a beast. That app would be... Pick me the subs. There it is. All right, so I just hit record on Pro Tools and play a couple down. That's a couple. Um, one thing that I tend to do with my LFE style elements is I will kick open an EQ. And the dance music guys know this from forever. And I'll filter it out. I'll do a high pass at about 40. Um, there we go. Maybe I'll come down to 30. So it's still nice and chunky. But synths are capable of going way lower than you're going to need. And they tend to suck up a lot of headroom with 20 hertz or 10 hertz that you'll never hear. Yeah, and that most mixed stages and theaters aren't going to reproduce anyway. Right. You know, I mean, the, I have a full theatrical playback system here, and my curve is 20 hertz. So yeah, that might be a little conservative. Ooh. You getting scared of what that gun's gonna sound like? It's pretty terrifying already. Just a big mid-range scoop. I do that a lot, mid-range scoops. That's the name of my favorite band. <laughs> uh, now I need some sort of an energy charge. Massive again is really good for that type of stuff. Ooh, I dig that. That's still on my kick drum search too. Let's kick the kick ass bass. So, and you know, I, I do tend to just kind of I'll pick a track and I'll just roll something and try and perform it in a way that makes sense for me. Back return. Recording. Back to massive. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
other than massive, what synths do you like to use for this stuff, Renee? Uh, I like FM8. I mean, I like a lot of the NI stuff um, just because it sounds kick-ass right out of the box. Um, I need to... One of my weaknesses is actually synthesis, and I need to spend more time, you know, building some of those types of things from scratch um, just to make them really my own. Um, Dustin, what synths do you use? I usually start with Kima, and then um, lately, obviously, since I've built a modular system, I go there quite a bit. Um, in terms of plugins, uh, you know, Artaz, VST type things, then NI stuff is great. Um, I've become a real fan of some of the Rompler type things, uh, especially the stuff from a company which I've I've been working on a project lately, and I've been using the shit out of this stuff. Uh, Sample Logic. Hmm. It's really interesting. Um, it's more music design is what I would call it. You know, it's sound design, but it's 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 definitely a musical quality to it, um, which is sometimes difficult because you're you have to be worried about uh, you know harmony and that kind of thing. But but it sounds great, and I think it's a really interesting layer. And a lot of the times when I use those types of things, I will use those. Samples, I'll dig into the sample library, like the sample folder, and I'll rip those out and then throw that into Kima. So rather than just rolling through some presets or whatever, I can take their presets and then manipulate them through some of my own processes. I, I like having a, a diverse set of uh, foundation sounds that I can then manipulate, um, similar to what you just did, Renee. You know, it's just like putting a track and record and performing. Yeah. Uh, other things like synthy synth things, um, I'm a big fan of the Yuhi stuff. Uh, Zebra is great. Um, it was all over the Batman score, if you're fans of that score. Um, they actually, <laughs> Hans Zimmer actually had, and it's it, they were they are a small shop, and it used to be just one guy, and now I think he has some help. But Hans actually reached out to him and had him make a special version of that software for the Batman score. Nice. And... One thing which I think is just absolutely brilliant, and I hope more people do this, they released that version, and Hans released all the presets that he used. You know, obviously he created them, but he released them as a preset bank. So if you want to hear a lot of the themes that you hear all over Batman, I mean, it's like, I forget what the price is, but it's very affordable. Um, it's u-he.com or .net, something like that. Hmm. Um, but it's great, and it sounds fantastic all of their products are awesome um so i really like their stuff a lot i used to be all over the synth stuff but now i don't i don't use too many of them i mean i kima between kima and the modular system if i want to do something i just build it yeah so and you know a lot of my personal style is very microphone based you know mm -hmm. a lot of what i go to for synths are low frequency things and things that are really just supposed to be synthy sounding Yep. Um, let me see what the sound. By microphone based, you mean you just go out and record the sounds yourself? Yeah, lots of that. Yeah. You know what I'm gonna do with that first slide thing? I'm gonna put a little um, phaser on it, just to make it sound a little more hi-fi. Modulation. Made a flanger. Classic phaser. Turn my rate up some. There it is. And then I can take this other thing. Um, what I tend to do, if I want to make that pitch um, move even more dramatic, I'll use pitch in time. 
So I'll kick it open into pitching time, to put it to put it to zero on my handle. You can put it in a, your pitch mode um, where you can draw an envelope. Just make it go even further. Um, and then what I think I'm going to do is just speed it up and see what happens. Um, and I'm going to kick a Mondo mod onto it so I can chop it up because I think I want that to chop. Uh, so Mondo mod has a uh, pulsing gate um, that I can turn up. It sounds like this. Turn my depth down a little bit. It's probably still too long. A seesaw design like sculpture, you know? It's a lot of kind yeah, of. Yeah, I think it is. Bending and twisting and kind of making things into the right thing. Now it needs an EQ again. What were you gonna say, Dustin? I also think it's experimentation. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's trying things and hating them and trying something else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's sometimes why it's so difficult to do sound design work sessions. If you've oh, ever done I, one of those, I hate having clients. This is so uncomfortable for me anyway right now. <laughs> it, it's it's really difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's easy f f for me and Tim because I know that you're gonna try a hundred things that aren't quite right before you get to the thing that you that is right. But clients have a way of saying, well, that's not quite right. And you're that's like, yeah, perfect I know. First try. Yeah, I know it isn't. <laughs> Give me a minute. <laughs> um, I'm going to take this little metal door here and I'm going to turn it backwards. So again, my, I have a audio suite keystroke and just kind of make that do like so. I really wish Soundminer would just put a reverse button on the thing. It is weird that that hasn't happened yet. It's amazing to it me. It seems like something they I mean, just to audition it in reverse ago. would be perfect, you know? Or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I feel like that's real kind of bright in a weird way too, so I'm going to scoop a lot of the mid-range out of that, or upper mid. Like so. Yep. And I think with that guy, I'm going to put him on a delay. Do you ever do pitch stuff in SoundMiner? Yeah, I've already done some. Um, yeah. This This guy, that guy is pitched down quite a bit, actually, from the yeah. source. I do a lot of pitch in Soundminer. Yeah. That's actually it. I don't use the um, VST, VST rack, rack at all. I don't use you know, it at I don't all. either. I don't either. I know some people that do, but I kind of don't. Uh, I, I, I want the flexibility in my DAW for some reason. I don't know. It, I mean, obviously, there's I not agree. much difference, I guess. But um, I'm the yeah, same I, do, I do pitch. I do a lot of pitch, but I don't ever use a single plugin. <laughs> The only time I'll use the VST rack is is if it's a plugin that uh, is only VST, so I can't use easily within Pro Tools. So there, there's a few that I sometimes pull up within SoundMiner, but I agree with you guys. The vast, vast, vast majority 
Do you in the use the wrapper at all from F Expansion, Tim? Yeah, I did years ago, but I, I, I don't have it installed anymore. Yeah, I've, I've recently taken to the wrapper plus um, I use Vienna Ensemble Pro to host uh, audio units. So I can route from Pro Tools out to Vienna Ensemble to use some uh, audio unit only plugins and then right back then into right a back record in. track in Pro Tools. Because I come from Logic way back when, and uh, I still have a lot of my favorite plugins are audio unit. I never figured out Logic. It's a uh, weird German roots, you know? Yeah. Strange. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually much prefer it for sound design, for some reason. You prefer Logic to Pro Tools? For sound design, yes, absolutely. It's got kick-ass oh. plugins in it. I, I think it's much more flexible than Pro Tools is in... in certain ways. I mean, it's, you know, to each their own. That's a discussion argument that goes nowhere, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you up to, Renee? We're hearing some cool stuff. I'm still looking for something else to really define the top click of this thing. I want, I want it to be a like a... almost like a door, I guess. Like what, I tag stuff as badass when it's really badass. I'm gonna look for a badass metal door and see what I find here. Do you use playlists at all in Soundminer? Never. No? I've started to, to make favorite playlists of things, just like, you know, tagging things as badass or whatever. Yeah, I know that they're real proud of the playlist function. Um, I love it. I asked them for years for favorites. You know, that's all I wanted was favorites, somehow to tag something as something I liked. Um, I just use metadata to do it. Yeah. Oh, hey, look, this recording's in mono. I, I figure that's the easiest way, you know, that's the most universal, simplest thing I can do. How much, yeah. how much do you... And then metadata automatically pops up when you scan it into a, uh, someone else's database or exactly. on another computer. Yeah. Instead of having to... I, I suppose the playlist you can save some way, but I, I prefer metadata as well. What were you going to ask, Dustin? Um, how much do you do in mono versus stereo? Right now, I've got four mono tracks and two stereo tracks working. I do a lot of mono. I'm a big Me fan too. of mono. Yep. Um, yep. This sound right here is four mono tracks and two stereo. At this point. Um, yeah, I tend to do some of the big, like, low-end stuff in stereo, and then pretty much everything else is mono. I do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I do big, <laughs> low-end stuff in mono. Um... Anything that I want kind of ear candy, because, you know, your, your high end is going to locate better in stereo. I don't like that at all. Are we done yet? I'm going to go get some coffee. <laughs> That's my favorite thing when you're halfway, you spent 20 minutes building a sound and then you just lean back in your chair and go, yeah, I don't like that at all. <laughs> the, the part that I don't like is the... Um, that one element that I just added, um, and have a projector. Yeah, obviously not the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> there, I've, one time while I was walking my dog, I found a projector laying on the ground, and I brought it into the studio and recorded it, and it is my secret weapon for clicks. Um, and then I threw it away afterwards, because it didn't work. <laughs> Where are you at? Projector. There you go. This guy. 
So yeah, again, I can just pitch those until I'm happy with them. That's a stereo recording that I just spotted in the mono. I just click the mono button. There we go. Let's see. Um, the uh, have you guys heard of the sound morph stuff? Yeah, well, I, I know about the Galactic Assistant. Do they? Is that them? I happen to have it, and I'm going to use it. Where are you at? Because that thing is cool. So, do you have the the full package, or did you just get the? You no, know, yeah, the, I bought the whole package. Yeah, those guys are package. really cool too. I I did an email thing with you know I was emailing them back and forth because. You know, I, was ha I had an issue with my initial download, and those guys are just, they're really cool guys. They, um, they know what the hell they're doing. And um, Where are they located? Where's it out of? Santa Monica, I think. California, Santa for Monica. sure. Yep, there it is. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, it's a standalone app, so the only downside to standalone apps is signal routing. But with that said, that's cool. But you can draw your envelope of um, where the sounds kind of come from. So if I want it to like do a swell, uh, I can do like so. I kind of want it to go faster than that. I just want a little beep, a little sci-fi kind of beep right at the top of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So for those that don't know, Soundmorph is a fairly new company, I think, and the Galactic Assistant is uh, part was originally part of a package of uh, a UI library of sounds, and then you can make your own based off the library, right? Or is it synthesized? Like, is it creating its own sounds, or is yeah, it yeah, based they, on samples? Well, there's two things. There's a library with recorded sounds in it, um, and there is a synth, and that's what this Galactic Assistant... The Galactic Assistant itself is a synth. So you can just kind of jump through it that quickly. Sure, I'll use that one. Um, so how are you routing it into Pro Tools? Same way, you know, I've got I've got my Mac routed digitally into um, Pro Tools. So I just set up a channel with my Mac input as my input, and hit record, and then hit play, then I hit stop. And I have a sound. I'm running out of space at the very beginning of this thing. There we go. I feel like it's way too much build up at this point. <laughs> So I'm going to shrink it down. There we go. All right, now I need a big kind of thumpy blast. It's got to be blue. Got to be blue. A blue blast. Blue thumpy blast. Um, so. I actually worked on a sci-fi animation series a few years ago, 
and the different characters had uh, different powers that they could shoot out their hands. Uh, and each character's powers were different colors. And I really like got into the world of what each color sounded like. Like the blue laser beams sounded completely different than the red ones in my head when I saw them, even though essentially they're exactly the same, but different color. <laughs> and like in that, the world of that show, red meant a certain kind of sound, blue meant a certain kind of sound, green and yellow, there was those four colors. And uh, it, you can really uh, use that color to drive the sound in, a, in unique ways. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I definitely associate blues with like choruses. Um, and red with like distortion. So I think it less in terms of um, I think of it less in terms of frequency and tonality and more in terms of effect. I'm back in massive now. funny this is how it always is that could be interesting without the reverb on it the thing that i love about what we're kind of showing i i don't know if they would ever listen to it but when people come to you and they're like we need uh you know 30 assets uh for a game right it'll it'll take what an hour right no yeah, that was just cost us 30 Because they look right? at this gun blast as one sound instead of the hours of time spent picking out each little element of it. Yeah, and just kind of building it. And, you know, just... I told the story the other day. I didn't tell it, but I heard the story the other day of... Picasso was sitting there in a bar, and some guy asked him to make, draw him, a, make him a drawing. And so he grabbed a bar napkin, and he drew him something in 30 seconds... And he said, that'll cost you $1 million. And the guy said, a million dollars? That took you 30 seconds. And Picasso said, it took me 50 years to learn how to do that in 30 seconds. <laughs> there you go. It's kind of turning into something. Um, now I need some electricity. Tonsturm has the kick-ass electricity that I kind of always go to. That library is amazing. It really is. Something about that library that I found is very useful is clients love hearing the stories behind that library because like half the sounds are like them frying chicken bones Absolutely. and frying flowers and stuff like that and it's like oh when you can tell the client when they say oh i really love that what is that and you can be like oh well these guys in germany set up electrodes to plants and fried them and that's what it sounds like, and like yeah oh my god <laughs> eqing again jacking the eq way up on that guy Um, and then I'll probably do some distortion on that guy, too. B. 
beefy. You know what? I don't like it. <laughs> You're supposed to lean back in your chair and pronounce it in a more distressed way. I don't, don't like it. Like it. <laughs> uh, let me try flanger and see if I like that better. Almost. Better-ish. I'm liking it better. I'm still not loving it. It's a little better. Gonna need one more click right in the middle somewhere. Camera right click. Tighten this up to too much of a gap. This will be the best episode ever. <laughs> and I'm going to pitch that guy down. For fun, let's do an actual rifle shot. That's a rifle I recorded, so I will use that one. And again with the EQ. And maybe I'll just crush that guy to death with the compressor. Um, okay, so I feel like this is turning into a gun here. Maybe I don't have the guy yelling. I'm feeling good about that. I could probably give it even a little bit more of like a trail as the projectile kind of flows away. I'll just look for some drones. Something like that. Give it kind of a 70s feel.
Dig it. So there we have it. Does that sound blue enough? <laughs> I think it sounded good. <laughs> I feel like I could geek on that more, but at the same time, I feel like if I were, if I had a list of a hundred of these, I'd be good there and move on to the next thing. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. So yeah, any questions on thought process? How would you guys approach that differently? I mean, I think I'd generally do the same thing. You know, it's it's kind of not necessarily talking it out, although sometimes I talk it out, just usually no one listens. But, um, you know, getting an idea of what it is in your head and then really just playing through your available resources, whatever they may be, whether it's sample libraries or whether it's synthesizers or whether it's uh, something totally different. But just experimenting and trying to chase that thing in your head, I think the tricky thing becomes maintaining that vision while you're experimenting because it's really easy to go off the rails. Yep. <clears throat> when you're playing a whole bunch of different things, you know, so. And this thing is definitely, it turned out a little differently than what I heard in my head. Yeah, and that, and I think that's okay. And I was going to ask you, you know, will you come back to this sound? You know, a, a say you were actually making this for delivery to a client. Would you sit on it for the night and come back in the morning and see what you thought? Or would you leave it and let it go? I I tend to try and leave things and let them go. I will try and work on something until it's not nagging me. Um, yeah. I do tend to try and work as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it is easy to get lost in a rabbit hole, and I don't like to sit and tweak parameters too much. I like to decide quickly whether I like a sound or not, and if I don't like it, move on. Because otherwise I get yeah. bogged down and it just jacks up my whole mental process, you know? Yeah, I like to do the same, although if I do have the luxury of time, which is very rare, but uh, if I do, I, I like to give myself a night to step away from work completely yeah. and then come back and see what I think in the morning. Because a lot of times, especially if you're working late or under stress or under tight deadlines, it's good to give yourself some space from the project and a little bit of perspective. You know, what you thought was great that night you might come back and be like, oh, what was I thinking? You know, Because right. you were just in a certain groove, whatever that groove was. But Yeah, um, for sure. So sometimes I do like to let it, let it cook, so to speak, and then see if it still tastes good in the morning. Mm -hmm. As much as we don't like to admit it, time management becomes uh, an issue with sound design as well. When you know you have to get to 10 minutes into this battle sequence this week, because if you don't, you're not going to have time to finish the battle sequence. Yep. So you... As much as you want to keep going and drilling into it to get that perfect sound, you also have to keep the bigger picture in mind to figure out how you're going to get everything done because we all have deadlines and a client would much rather have a sound that's 98% of the way there than, and make their deadline than have a sound that's 100% there but two months too late. Yep. So I always have to keep that in mind. Is It's definitely time management. you got to get it as good as you can in this amount of time. Yeah, for sure. I had a boss who gave me some of the best advice I've ever gotten in this industry, and he said, don't ever go back until you've made it all the way to the end. So if you're working on a 30-second commercial, for instance, don't ever stop moving down the timeline. You know, Don't sit on one spot until you've covered everything all the way to the end. And it doesn't matter if that everything is right or not, but just to Tim's point, get a sound happening for everything. You know, get the general guts happening 
and then go back and start tweaking and building and yeah. manipulating as, as is necessary. But get yourself to the end. Because if you sit, you know, especially if you're working on a long-form project, if you sit on a sound that's in the beginning, by the time you get to the end, that sound that you spent three and a half hours or three and a half days making might not make any sense in context yep. for the whole duration of that project. So in order to give yourself that context, get to the end, you know, and do that in whatever way works for you, whether it's just pulling out raw samples and getting stuff happening, just placeholder type stuff, or whether it's just doing some basic sound design or whatever it might be, making mouth noises, you know, if you want to do that. I have uh, some friends who love to do that. They'll just roll through a project and kind of whatever comes to their mind, they'll make the those sounds with their mouth. You know, kind of like you did, Renee, in the beginning. Where sure, you yeah. Kind of gave us. It's very expressive. The, yeah, but yeah, just get something happening for everything. Get to the end of the project, then roll back, and then start. Doing and you also it for have real. to map out priorities. Yep. Like, there are certain signature sounds, like in the movie Looper, the the gun sound that they had. Like that's a priority. That's a signature sound of that film. So it's worth taking the time and making sure that that one's exactly what you want. Meanwhile, you know, the sound of the futuristic cars passing by in the distance as they're talking under a bridge, maybe those aren't the things you need to spend years on. Yeah. But it, like, it's all time management, figuring out your priorities, figuring out how you're going to map your way through this behemoth of a project. If it is a movie or a t television show or a commercial or a video game, you just have to have, you can't just go wildly, I'm going to get done today what I get done today. I suppose on ma mammoth projects with uh, when you built up a certain respect, maybe that's possible. But for the most part, you have to uh, figure out how you're going to tackle things and kind of stay on that timeline and priority list. What I've found helps me with regards to working quickly the most is side projects and having my default kind of approaches to things. Um, side projects will help you get to know all of your tools and all of your toys, and it really helps you start to figure out in this library of, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of sounds, where can I go to immediately to find Which something Which ones do I tag start. badass? Work, exactly. What did I tag badass? What did I actually go out and record? You know, I know what those specific things sound like, and I know the stories behind those sounds. So by side project, do you mean, like, something that you're not billing by the hour for that you can like kind of take your time with? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Having your own projects and working your own things. You know, I, I like to, you know, work on short films on the side that me and my friends do, you know, or whatever, you know, or, you know, I put out the sound effects libraries for Echo Collective. And so, you know, I do a lot of recording that way. Or, you know, in my, in, in the case of the studio here, I also am in charge of all of the sound effects librarian duties, you know, so I have to sit and just mess with all the sounds and always having my hands on the sounds and always working them helps me um, know what's in there and ha and know where to go quickly. And the same is true with the synth, you know, what I mean, I, I kick open massive, you know, as a as a trope, basically, you know, because I know I can make a kick ass kick drum sound quickly with massive. Um, I'm sure I could sit and, and, you know, break open FM8 and start it flat and come up with something kick ass you know, after 30 minutes or so, but it's going to contribute about the same to that sound. When I first started in the industry, the first place I worked, the boss told me, like, I'd obviously just come out of film school, and he said, you know, any project that you want to work on, that you want to volunteer your time on, that 
wouldn't be able to afford as normally, meaning like a, one of my friend's little indie films, uh, short films. He, he encouraged us to work on those as long as it didn't step on any of the studio's main business. Yeah. Because he was right, because I could take my time and learn stuff that when a client's in the room breathing over your shoulder, you don't have the luxury of kicking open this new piece of software because you don't know it yet. Where on these other projects where either you're alone or your buddies aren't worried about the, the clock ticking, you can experiment and learn and then use that knowledge when the clock is ticking and get through stuff quicker. Yeah. And when he first told me that, I didn't really understand that that's why he was telling me that. But in hindsight, now that I, you know, 17 years later, it was some of the best stuff I did was all those films where uh, I didn't really know what I was doing and I was in over my head. But then when I was on the clock with a client, I wasn't in over my head because I'd been through those experiences in a less pressurized environment. Yeah. If anything, it, it helps you understand what won't work immediately. Exactly. It helps you avoid a bunch of crap that you know already isn't going to work because um, you've tried and failed with those things before. Yeah, it builds up your go-to tools. Exactly. And, you know, I'm at a point in my career right now where I hate a lot of my go-to stuff because I've used it too much. And so yes. it's like I need to um, – I'm at a point right now to where I need to spend some time and refine my aesthetic and study – some other things that I learn and, and just, I need to study and practice more right now in order to break out of my personal tropes that I have. But it's important to kind of get yourself to a point to where you can have all of your own personal stuff and then have it all be part of your own style, I guess, or whatever, and then be tired of it and move on to the next thing. That's a cycle that, that always repeats. And the more it repeats, the more certain individual parts of what you do will stick across those cycles. As you go through your personal purges of things that you don't don't want to do that way anymore, you won't purge everything. You'll just purge the stuff that's not you at the moment anymore. So it's developing developing language, developing tools, purging those tools when you hate them, and then developing new stuff, and then purging, and then developing, and then purging. And then over you know years and decades, you start to have a whole bunch of stuff that is always going to be cool, you know. Or you start to have a really deep toolkit, and that's important. And that's what helps me work fast is having a, a toolkit of go-to stuff that I can start with. Like you were saying, Dustin, you know, you can get something working, get something on the canvas for a minute and then start sculpting in and out yep. from there. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, sometimes it'll help get you over the writer's block, so to speak, to yeah. just have something happening. Because a lot of times you can beat your head over the wall trying to make the right sound and get nowhere. But if you just, you know, start with a bass, you know, start with, like, pretend you're just, painting your house you know start with a base coat get the base coat done and then go back and apply yeah. or you know, you know give yourself play. give yourself side projects like for instance you know i have a lot of designed you know hits that i have you know these kind of things yeah. that i just sat down and did one day and you know it helped well, yeah. refine my technique I, of how to make those you know i think the point you know the, the overarching point here would be don't wait for someone to give you work to do work Right, exactly. And I mean, you've spent all this time investing in these tools, all this money investing in these tools. Use them. Use them in your spare time. You know, this should be a passion of yours. So, you know, I like to tell people if no one ever paid me again, I'd still get up and make noises all day. Yep. And I would hope that most of the people listening to the show feel the same way. So, you know, if you get up and you don't have a project or if you're hanging out one night, get make something, you know. And and I think that that's a, a really great thing thing, Renee, like give yourself a, um, a goal. Like today I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make 25 impacts. Yep. You know, um, or today I'm going to sit down and make 
25 uh, spacey ambiences. Yeah. Whatever. And then just start making stuff. And it's a great way to learn tools. It's a great way to figure out new techniques. It's a great way to experiment because you can't really learn with clients, you know, You don't want to learn out with clients you. over your shoulders. No, I mean, they're looking for own. results. Yeah, they're, they're paying for that time. You know, they're not paying for you to figure stuff out. They're paying for you to give them what they want. And the learning should happen on your own. I mean, obviously, anytime you sit down at your, uh, your rig, you're learning, but... You should have a good feel of your tools before you open them in a in a paying work session. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's it's good to put yourself in a little bit of a box when you're when you're doing that type of practice too. I mean, like for instance, with these impacts, you know, step one for me, you know, some of these I built years ago. You know, step one was build a bunch of impacts, right? And then you know, when I started iterating on that, I started doing them again and again. It was like, all right, build some with only synths, you know. And it was, so, you know, I said some of that kind of stuff. And so you put, you can put yourself in smaller and smaller boxes and it forces you to be more and more creative within those boxes to execute the same thing over and over and over again. Yep. Um, and I found great value in doing that kind of thing too. Well, hopefully that was entertaining to people. That was cool. Remember, if, if you want to go back and listen to episode 005 of Tone Benders, we did an interview with Dustin Kaywood about the film Chasing Ice. Yeah. At the time, that film was only out in theaters, but it's now available for rent, and it's also on Netflix. Oh, it's on Netflix. So, uh, yeah, it is on, well, at least the Netflix Canada. I'm assuming it's on Netflix uh, in the States and around the world now. So it might be uh, a good thing for you guys, another piece of homework for everybody to uh, go and check out that film and uh, then listen to the Dustin Kaywood interview so that it makes a little more sense in context. And it's also just a really interesting film to see. So that, in addition to, uh, we'll reiterate the piece of homework we have for next episode, go see Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. And uh, we're going to talk to the sound designer and uh, re-recording mixer, Call Anderson, in the next episode. And if you have any questions that you would like to present to Call or add to a discussion we're going to have with him, get them in to us by July 5th through uh, info at tonebenders.net. Nice. Thanks for everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. See you guys next time. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders, or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net. <laughs> <laughs>